COVID issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this episode of Sunday Chops. And this time I have a real cracker for you. I'm talking to historian Honor Cargill-Martin about her new book, Messalina, a story of empire, slander and adultery, which is released this week, more specifically on Thursday the 11th of May. If you're wondering who Messalina is, I'm going to give you a bit of background. She was the third wife of Roman Emperor Claudius. She was a cousin of Emperor Nero, a second cousin of Emperor Caligula, and a great-grandniece of the first emperor, Augustus. So, you know, in terms of the early days of the Roman Empire, about as well-connected as it was possible to be. She was born somewhere between 17 and 20 AD and died in 48 AD, and subsequent to her death, has been largely remembered as a sexually insatiable woman. How much of this is due to the fact that history was written by her enemies or written by men? Who was she really? You can expect the answers to those questions and more in the following interview. You are welcome. I am joined by classicist and author Honor Cargill-Martin, author of a new book, Messalina, A Story of Empire, Slander and Adultery. Thank you for joining me. No, thank you so much for having me. Messalina, she's a woman so notorious. And twice yeah. in this last week, I've told someone that I was reading a book about her. And twice I have accidentally said Melisandra rather than Messalina. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know, Melisandra is the sexy witch in Game of Thrones. And I think maybe that tells us quite a lot about Messalina and her <laughs> reputation. I quite like that comparison, actually. I think probably a good place to start. I listen to the Rest is History podcast. I absolutely love it. Tom Holland gets asked all the time the question when you're talking about things that happened 2000 years ago. How the hell do you know? So I thought perhaps yeah. you could maybe run our listeners through that first. Yeah, well, working with this period of history is a very strange experience because it's actually an incredibly well-documented period of history. It's possibly the best documented period of history until we're getting into kind of the late medieval renaissance periods. There's like a huge amount of information. The problem is all of that information is an absolute nightmare to work with. and You can't really trust any of it. So for Messalina and for the Judeo-Claudians in general, there are kind of three main historical sources. There's Suetonius, Lysol 12 Caesars, Tacitus, and Cassius Dio. All of those come with significant, significant problems. Uh, they all have very distinct kind of political agendas that you have to be very aware of when you're reading them. And the ancient approach to history writing is very different to what it is today. It's seen much more as like a literary pursuit. And it seemed to be much more legitimate that you would kind of use like very literary devices, like narratives, um, kind of very conscious characterization, almost turning people into stock characters or archetypes. And I think these are things you have to be very, very aware of when you're looking at these sources, and particularly when you're working with women, because mm. obviously all of these sources are written by men. And also women's stories are kind of ripe for this sort of historical literary manipulation, because these women who are involved in politics in this period, they're not involved in politics openly and publicly. They're not going and making speeches in the Senate, which are written down and scribed on the walls and people can kind of fact check what the historians are saying. Their political actions are all happening in the court behind closed doors. And so there's much more room for historians to kind of interpret or mm. reinterpret 
what's going on. You can learn a lot from looking at how they look at these women and they're very interesting things to look at in historiography, but you, you have to be careful with that. There's also a huge amount of kind of supplementary evidence, which I love working with. I think it's so much fun. There's lots of like poetry, satire, letters, and then lots of material evidence as well. There are inscriptions, there are statues. Uh, obviously we have Pompeii, which is like a time capsule of life in this mm. period, lots of architecture. And so you can get a really good insight into the the world and the culture in which these historical uh, events are taking place. Okay, so here's another question. As someone who's writing about it now, a woman in the 21st century, how do you make sure you don't fall into the traps that the people of the past have fallen into? <laughs> uh, it's it's very difficult to do. And I think it's obviously impossible to... I think you have to be aware when you're starting of what the limitations of what you're doing are. I was very aware when I was writing this book that it's impossible when you're working with ancient history always, but particularly when you're working with ancient women to kind of access and to feel confident that you've accessed the like absolute truth of who that person was and what their life, like what their life story was. I think you've got to be aware that that certainty and that degree of certainty is impossible. And it's just about kind of working with a narrative that is perhaps most likely. And also I think what's really important is stripping back the layers of prejudice that have been kind of placed on top of these women's stories and just seeing what you're left with. Okay, so Messalina, either yeah. history's most notorious shagger or history's most maligned exactly. woman. Possibly both, you know, <laughs> why not both? <laughs> well, exactly that. It's interesting because there's so many women that actually popped when I was reading this other women from history that I kept thinking yeah. of it's a horribly kind of universal story yeah it's funny because I was thinking about is, it, is she called the Duchess of Argyle I'm sure it's the the, the yes. famous court case and I kept thinking about how you know those stories about her were true but the judgment on her the, the fact that once a woman said that she did like sex suddenly the judgment was well that makes you a deviant it's incredible. What one of the men in the family called her a Messalina in the family. Did he really? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. I did search to see whether the judge mentioned her in his summing up, but to be honest, I probably put Melisandre in because like I said, I couldn't, <laughs> get, I couldn't get that out of my head. Perhaps before we get to her, could you give us an idea of what the social and sexual mores were at this time for women? Again, it's a complicated question, particularly because it's only men who are writing about this stuff. It's very hard to access like what women's opinions on their sexuality was. And I think also when you're with this type of sources that survive, kind of literary sources, and then also like inscriptions, funeral inscriptions, things like that. What we see is really like the ideal of female sexual behavior and then discussions of transgressions of that ideal. And so it can be very hard to sort of work out where the actual social norms fall, because obviously, as a society, we always have our ideals and our norms for what are kind of acceptable actions and behavioral styles can be very different to what we idealize. And it's very hard to kind of work out what was common behavior. I think what is certainly true is that they're obviously the ideal of female behavior in this period for upper class Roman women is chastity. By chastity, I mean fidelity to their husband. 
And I think that that's an important distinction to make in that there is none of this kind of Christian perception of sex as something which is intrinsically immoral or intrinsically kind of dirty. The idea is that sex is something which is potentially dangerous to like the patriarchal social structure. And so when we talk about chastity in an ancient context, we're not talking about abstaining from sex, we're talking about marital fidelity. So the ideal is marital fidelity. That being said, there is a massive anxiety in this period about the commonality of adultery. And there is this constant perception among male writers that women are behaving worse. Every year women are starting to behave worse. More women are cheating on their husbands. And in Rome and in upper class women's society, it's, it is complicated because marriages are always socioeconomic decisions. These are almost always arranged marriages that are made for family and fortune rather than for love. And so the the ideal of romantic love in Roman society is actually very kind of explicitly related to extramarital affairs. And so you have these two very strange coexisting ideals in that you have the ideal of marital fidelity, and then you have this almost romanticized perception of adultery. And I think that this creates a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety. It's very hard to access like how normal was it actually for women to engage Mm. in extramarital affairs. But I think what we can certainly say is that it definitely did happen. It is a source of anxiety and a lot of women are prosecuted for adultery and kind of in any society where people are being forced into marriage, not for love. You're, you're going to start to see these sort of things occurring. So, Vesselina, she's the third wife of Claudius. She's cons- oh, the Emperor Claudius. She's considerably yeah. younger than him. Much younger than him. There is a notorious story, so we, we might as well get to that, about, well, you tell me the notorious story about Vesselina. Well, there are quite a few. <laughs> um, <laughs> are you talking about the one where she leaves the palace at night or the competition? I'm talking about the competition, yeah. So there is a story which actually, and I find this so funny, it appears in a ostensibly a scientific text. <laughs> uh, the story is that the empress challenges the most notorious courtesan in Rome to a competition of sexual stamina. and. The challenge is who can sleep with more men in 24 hours and Messalina wins with uh, 25, which is quite a story. Yeah, it is quite a story. Now, how much of that story is story? Uh, How much of that is true? Yeah. I would argue absolutely none. (laughs) As brilliant as that story is, it is so wildly implausible. And also it hits on so many points that a lot of the kind of propaganda and the rumors that emerge after Messalina's death head on that I think it's it's impossible that it's not fabricated. Firstly, Messalina is turned into this kind of archetype of female insatiability. So this just stamina and number of men really fits into that. And then also the association with the prostitute, I think is really interesting because this is a theme that we see a lot in the rumors that emerge in the aftermath of Messalina's fall. There's also a rumor in Juvenal that, who's a Roman satirist, that she leaves the palace every night and goes and works in like a low class brothel. And I think that that is such an interesting association. We see it there, we see it in Pliny. There's also a reference in Cassius Dio to her basically forcing her ladies in waiting to engage in prostitution within the palace. And I find that so fascinating because the prostitute in Roman culture is this 
incredibly sort of destabilizing figure. She sort of exists almost beyond mm. the structures of, of kind of patriarchal social control. Like she probably doesn't have a husband. She was almost certainly trafficked into Rome. So she's not under the control of her father. She also is ostensibly legally the lowest of the low, but is consorting with men who might be incredibly wealthy, incredibly socially powerful, and she also kind of transgresses boundaries of public and private. The ideal Roman woman like exists within the private sphere, but the prostitute is seen as a very public figure. And so the prostitute is kind of this icon of social destabilization. And I think it's so interesting that she's associated with Messalina because a lot of the anxieties that appear about Messalina, I think, are related to her role in quite significant political changes mm. that are going on in this period. And this sense that the People around the emperor, his family and his ex-slave advisors are becoming much more powerful than the kind of old aristocracy of senators. And so I think that that like her role in that kind of political social destabilization and then the association of her with the figure of the prostitute, I think, makes a, a weird amount of sense. And so I think that it that forces us to look at those rumors and ask what might be motivating them other than her actually having gone off and engaged in this like yeah. wild competition. Obviously, I mean, maybe she did. We never know. <laughs> it suits the narrative, you know, with Rome, that it was a free-for-all. Yeah. We have this idea oh, that sure. Rome was this, they were all sexual libertines and it was a massive free-for-all. So it, the kind of myth of the Roman orgy. Yeah, it sort of fits snugly. That story fits into that, oh, that sure. image, doesn't it? When she actually fell from grace, this, this happened because... Because she married, I'm going to put that in little bunny yeah. ears, she married somebody else. How much of that do you think is is correct? The story as it appears in Tacitus, who's our main source for her, all he gives us the most detailed account is, I think, it, it's, it's very difficult to credit. The accusation is that she falls desperately in love with this handsome Roman aristocrat. And she decides that when her husband is essentially away on business to... Ostia, which is like very much not far from Rome, mm-hmm. that she's going to marry her lover and potentially then try to overthrow the emperor. I think it's very difficult to credit because she really has no motivation to do this at this point. Her son, Britannicus, is Claudius's son. He's his heir. That's all very stable. She is in a position of very significant power. And also there's no evidence that once Claudius returns to Rome and this whole thing starts to sort of unravel, there's no evidence of them actually trying to follow through on any sort of coup. So I just think it's it's not a particularly plausible narrative. And I think it's more likely that what we're seeing is a kind of attack on Messalina and the accusation of her having bigamously married Silius mm. and having engaged in this treasonous coup is being added on to accusations of adultery to kind of exacerbate them and uh, really up the stakes. This is where I, I again saw a comparison to uh, another woman in history, which was Anne Boleyn. I think it's such an absolute comparison. Because once they went for her, the men were lining up. It wasn't enough to have one man accuse her. There had mm. to be loads of men accuse her and it had to be her brother it had to be piled on that this was not just an affair this was deviancy yeah exactly number of men and then also kind of addition of something that's that's weird and so deeply socially unacceptable Mm. that it almost forces you to take the adultery accusation seriously or to kind of side with the accusers 
just because the stakes have been made so high. And yeah, exactly. In Anne Boleyn's case, it's incest. And in this case, it's bigamy. And I think it's interesting that in both cases, you also see these accusations of adultery and sexual deviancy and kind of straying outside of the royal marriage being combined with accusations of treason. It's this very direct link that we find between straying outside your marriage and kind of betraying your husband on that sense and being kind of betraying the state. After her death, Messalina suffered damnatio memoriae. Is that correct? Exactly. Right. Yes. Great. Which is, I suppose, you could say in the way that nothing is new, a very early form of cancel culture. What does that actually involve? So there are two forms of damnatio memoriae uh, in Rome. Um, One of them is kind of informal. It would be the destruction of people's... So informal people are just kind of doing it themselves and then one is formal so the senate orders this to be done throughout the empire messalina has the worst version she is the senate put out an order this is only the second time in roman history that this has happened that all of her statues all of the images of her all of the inscriptions mentioning her name have to be destroyed and we can see actually like archaeological evidence of this it's so cool we find a couple of statues of messalina where the head has literally been smashed into kind of pieces with like a massive hammer and it's just been left there. And we see other examples where in inscriptions, the inscription's been left and her name has literally been chiseled off. It's this total, total wiping out of any kind of good trace of the power and the influence and potentially the kind of good impact that a person might have had. In many ways it worked, but we are talking about her now. So in many ways it hasn't. (laughs) I, I would say that Damnatio Memoriae does very distinctly for Messalina is it creates this kind of almost like open season for people to create these rumours about her. Because if you're seeing the statue of the Empress being smashed in your marketplace, mm-hmm. like I think that this creates this atmosphere where everyone's wanting to know what happened and it creates this almost petri dish for the generation of these really wild rumours about her sexuality and her private life. I'm in Rome in a couple of weeks. Is there anything, oh. is there anything I can see of her? Is there any place that... Of Messalina? Yeah. God, no, there's nothing left in Rome of Messalina, I wouldn't say. The only statue of her that survived unscathed is in the Louvre in Paris. There are There are some inscriptions in Rome that had her name chiseled off, but I'm not sure if they're like, anywhere that you can see them. I would say the best thing to do in Rome is just to kind of walk around those spaces that are left, the forum and things like that. And you just get, it's such a magical place. You get such a kind of sense of the the power that this civilization had. Mm. I I spent a week there about, I know, about 10 years ago. And I think I saw yeah. about 5% of, you know, what there was yeah. to see after being up from like eight o'clock to eight o'clock and walking like however many miles yeah. a day. I was, people were still like, oh, did you go to that? And you were like, no, there just isn't. The yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Going back to Messalina, having written a book about her now, what's your sort of yeah. overwhelming feeling towards her? Do you, do you like her? Is that is that an appropriate word to use? Okay, when I started off this book and I started this project, I was so kind of distinctly like I'm not going to have a personal opinion on her I'm going to be like a a good kind of unbiased biographer 
But I think, honestly, like that was so naive. I think it's impossible when you're working on someone's biography for so long. I think it's impossible not to feel that you have some sort of connection to them. I feel that she would be an absolutely amazing person to have dinner with. (laughs) I think that she would just be so much fun. Look, I think I have an awful lot of respect for her ambition and her success and her intelligence in terms of like how she works court politics. Obviously, looking at it by the standards of today, her methods are potentially a a little murdery um, (laughs) and definitely definitely not feminist. Like she she tramples on other women in order to get to the top. So I can't say that I, I approve of her methods, but that's a very anachronistic thing to say. So I, I respect her her motivation and her kind of single-minded ambition. And I think her intelligence is so often underlooked because of this focus on her sexuality. There's this perception that either you are kind of sexual and passionate or you are intelligent and rational. And I think that that's massively coloured Messalina's story. And I think that that's incredibly unfair. I feel very passionately about that. I would also say I like, I empathise with her kind of baser desires like I I get the fact that she was a woman in her early 20s who wanted love and luxury and kind of a bit of like sensual pleasure and like a good party like I understand that maybe I don't necessarily approve of her methods of fulfilling those Mm. like desires but I I can't judge her for wanting that I think it's really hard when you're looking at uh, people from that period or indeed actually go back to the Tudors where you mm. where you look at them and you think how were people prepared to risk their lives so often for self-promotion essentially sure. and it's because I don't know life was really hard and short wasn't it so you had to grab your chances where where you could yeah and I I tried to kind of look quite a lot at the political world that was kind of occurring when Messine was growing up and which her parents were very involved mm. in and which she would have definitely been aware of and seen. And I think it really reminds you that like the the just the level of kind of brutality, danger, death, extremity that these people were witnessing from the very earliest years of their life. Like there is no way that it didn't affect your psyche and your perception of like what was what was yeah. acceptable or normal behavior. I mean Messalina begins her married life as a girl in her teens at the court of the Emperor Caligula. You know, that, yeah, that's quite. not <laughs> that affects you, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And although obviously she didn't live to say it, you know, what happened to Popeye, you know, kicked to yeah. death by her husband. You just think that's the circle she was moving in. That's the sort of the stakes. Yeah, also her daughter Octavia, mm. who is so murdered by Nero. Yeah. Wow. Great read, I have to say. Oh, thank you so much. I used to think that I didn't really like Roman history. I used to think that, I I always used to say I had no interest in anything that had happened before the French Revolution. That was my sort of (laughs) point. But I, yeah, I think it's just because it's, you have to get yourself into a totally different mindset and you have to be, you know, I have to try and keep all of these names, all of these names in my head, all of these people. Oh, the names are a nightmare. (laughs) Particularly since loads of them are called the same thing. (laughs) Oh God, it's so frustrating as a historian. I was, I think, I think the closest I've ever come to a full-blown mental breakdown was when I was trying to do the family trees for this book. I just... Honestly, like it nearly sent me over the edge. <laughs> they are, they're, they're insane. I think also Roman history is so often 
associated with kind of very male like I obviously I don't want to say military history is all male but there's kind of like military generals gladiators um and there's so much more to it than that uh it's such a some of the narratives are just absolutely brilliant I think they're so much fun and I really hope at the moment that like I love all of these kind of retellings of like women in myths and things like that and I kind of hope that that's encouraging more women to like look at the classics and look at like ancient history as well yeah and I think as well it does it does ask you to sort of question you know this idea of the romantic truth I was reading about Vercingetorix and then you know the romantic truth of Vercingetorix versus what actually likely is that story but how much is what you want the story to end up with are you putting on this yeah I think the layers of kind of mythologization that we see with ancient history are, particularly when you're working with women, I think that they're a really good way of training yourself to examine your own biases Mm. and to examine kind of how, what you think you might kind of put that into how you would like to tell a story. And I think that it forces you to kind of unpack a lot of your preconceptions just because you can't take anything for granted. Messalina, a story of empire, slander and adultery is out on the 11th of May. I'm I'm very excited. I'm a little nervous, but I'm I'm very excited about it. I mean, you must have been one of the first people to read it. It's so exciting. I hope you sent a copy to Mary Bird. I'm going to try to send a copy to Mary Bird. She's an absolute icon. I She was probably the reason that I went into classics. Yeah. I'm utterly obsessed with her. I feel like she's so kind of venerated. Yeah. I would be terrified. I actually, I saw her at like a book launch and I kept being like to myself, I'm going to go over and introduce myself. I was starstruck. Yeah. I've like encountered celebrities before. I've like, I, I've never, ever, ever been so awkward or terrified as I was being in the same room as Mary Bird. I was just like, oh my God, like the icon, the queen, like yeah. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. It's funny because some friends of mine, because I live in Cambridge, some friends of mine are, are neighbours yeah. of hers. So they know her. Oh, really? Yeah, they know her reasonably yeah. well. And then when I interviewed her, I was like, yeah, like you say, it's like I'd seen the Beatles. I was just so excited. Yeah. And uh, they were a bit like, you know, you know, we see her most mornings, and I was like, I know, but it's very, it's very. <laughs> was she an amazing person to interview? Yeah. Oh, she was great. Yeah, I did it in lockdown as well, so she had loads of time, which was great. Yeah, she's fantastic, and she's just—I actually also like—I've been reading a lot of her kind of more academic stuff for the PhD that I'm doing at the moment, and like, she is just absolutely. Oh my god, anything like the popular stuff, the academic stuff, all of it—it's just so. Oh my God, it's so amazing. Obsessed. Yeah, she's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. This has been brilliant. No, thank you so much for having me. Standard issue for all women.